Welcome to Macro Peace Theater. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I will be narrating a story to you from the sewers, the monetary sewers, the plumbing, the plumbing. We're going back to DC and DC's chart book. We did chart book number 12. Fantastic. Now we're doing chart book number 13, where we review data all the way through the second quarter here of 2021 to see how the Federal Reserve has changed its balance sheet and how this has affected U.S. banks and money markets, as well as where we're going to from here. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, as was the case with chart book number 12, there are charts, and I can't read them out. And I encourage you to actually go to Substack and see them for yourself. It'll be so much more educational for you. Okay, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the chart book. With the third quarter of 2021 in the books, let's look back at how the U.S. money market has evolved in the year so far and consider where things could go from here. Since short-term rates have been stable at very low levels for the entirety of the year, most of the charts will focus on quantities and flows, where most of the action has been, as opposed to prices. To start, we can look at the changes in Federal Reserve assets, which have increased mostly on autopilot this year as the Fed continues to buy about $120 billion a month in Treasury and agency securities. In this chart, we can see that the Fed has purchased about $740 billion in Treasury securities between fixed coupon notes, bonds, and tips, and about $450 billion in agency MBS. Treasury bills have remained part of the Fed's balance sheet assets, but since the level has not changed since March 2020, they are excluded here. Adding to this is a small decline in the Fed's other assets, due mainly to the roll-off of emergency lending facilities, leaving $1,085 billion total increase in assets for 2021 so far, right in line with what we would expect after nine months of $120 billion monthly growth. Since the purchase of assets by the Fed creates an offsetting liability, we would also expect liability, the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet to increase by a similar amount. However, on the liability side, we have also seen a reallocation of Fed liabilities from public hands, the U.S. Treasury, to private hands, resulting in private sector Fed liabilities increasing by significantly more than the asset growth for the period. This chart shows the effects of this reallocation and balance sheet growth on the liability side. Since the Treasury has spent down $1.4 trillion of cash held with the Fed year-to-date, other Fed liabilities have had to grow by just over $2.5 trillion to offset this decline and the overall growth of the balance sheet. While asset purchases and the draining of treasury cash balances both create bank reserves directly, these have accounted for only about $1 trillion of the offsetting increase. The largest contribution has come from the domestic reverse repo facility, 
where the U.S. money market fund complex has converted $1.4 trillion of Fed liabilities into this form. The large volume of conversion has been driven by both banks shedding assets and liabilities into money funds, increasing aggregate assets under management of money funds, and funds losing other investments due to the reduction in the outstanding supply of Treasury bills. To better understand the Fed's liability reallocation, let's map out the three primary routes through which bank reserves have been created this year. Number one, Fed buys securities, increasing the reserve balance of a primary dealer's clearing bank. Two, Treasury pays down maturing debt, increasing the reserve balance of the debt holder's bank. Note, since the Treasury reduced the quantity of bills outstanding this year, this mainly applies to bill holders who in aggregate received funds from the Treasury. 3. Treasury spends and sends out stimulus payments, increasing reserve balances of the recipient's bank. Though these transactions may also create deposits on the bank liability side that we will discuss later, we can first focus on the bank asset side where reserves are created mechanically through Fed and Treasury action. Note that the first two routes create reserves mainly at large money center banks who clear transactions for the primary dealers or maintain accounts for large holders of maturing treasury bills. The third route creates reserves at all banks since recipients of treasury payments and stimulus are much more widely distributed throughout the country. Also note that once reserves are created, they can be pushed to other banks through the purchase of assets or pay down of debt or leave the banking system in aggregate through the money market fund complex. This may be beneficial to some banks who do not wish to hold a high level of reserve since that may worsen the firm's leverage ratios. With this background on how and where bank reserves are being created, we can now look at where they are accumulating by examining the Fed's H8 statistics. The Fed collects this data by requesting banks voluntarily submit a weekly form FR2644 on the state of their balance sheet at the close of business every Wednesday. While this individual FR2644 submission is confidential, the H8 data release gives us estimated weekly total balance sheet levels across the U.S. banking system split by small domestic banks, large domestic banks, and foreign bank offices. Here we can see the year-to-date changes in asset cash asset levels across these three categories. Though cash assets here include physical cash held at bank branches as well as bank reserves with the Fed, we can safely assume most of the variance is coming from changes in reserve balances. From the chart, we can see that foreign bank offices have accumulated the most reserves as a group, 
with about half of the overall increase. Small and large domestic banks have about equally shared the remaining half, though the small banks have accumulated reserves much more smoothly. The continuous uptrend in these small bank balances is likely attributable to ongoing treasury payments to individuals which were at their peak in the first quarter and the more passive attitude of smaller banks toward managing their reserve levels. The large banks have more aggressively managed their reserve growth throughout the year, taking in reserves in the first and third quarters, but pushing them away in the second quarter. We can also observe the volatility in quarter-end balances at foreign bank offices since March 31st and June 30th happened to be reporting dates for this year. On these days, to optimize balance sheet metrics for other filings, foreign bank offices shed assets and liabilities temporarily. More on this when we discuss the bank liability side. For more detail on how large banks are actively managing their reserves, we can look at reported levels from recent 10Qs of the four largest U.S. banks. Though these figures are only released quarterly, and the latest release was Q2 2021, we can pick up on some trends here to extrapolate likely bank behavior. From the chart, we can see that two of these banks, Wells Fargo and Citigroup, have held their reserves roughly flat for a few quarters and likely not contributed meaningfully this year. Of the remaining two, JP Morgan added about $200 billion in the first quarter, while Bank of America shed about $100 billion over the first two quarters. If we assume that this trend has persisted into the third quarter, JP Morgan would be the largest contributor to the net about $200 billion increase in large bank reserve balances seen so far for the year. With the remaining large banks offsetting Bank of America's reduction in reserves. We can see evidence for this behavior in the distribution of reserve growth by Fed District, which are reported in Table 6 of the weekly H.4.1 report. The New York District holds reserves for JP Morgan, many of the large domestic banks, and most of the foreign bank officers, offices, as we can confirm by observing the same quarter and seasonality. As one of a few exceptions among the large domestic banks, Bank of America holds its reserves in the Richmond District, which was the only Fed district reporting a material decline in its balances this year of about $150 billion. If we take this to mean that large banks, including J.P. Morgan in the New York district, added $350 billion to make up the overall $200 billion added by large banks, the overall change in the New York district is explained neatly by this and the about $500 billion added by foreign bank offices. Now, let's turn to how banks can reduce their level of reserves individually within the banking system. The most straightforward way to do so is to simply purchase securities and transfer reserves to other banks in the settlement process.
the H8 data also tracks levels of investment securities in the three bank categories, which we can look at next to see how securities purchases have affected bank asset levels so far this year. This chart shows the change in Treasury and agency securities, excluding MBS, so far this year by bank type. We can see that large domestic banks have been the most active here, accumulating over $200 billion in, mostly Treasury, securities for their investment portfolios. This is to be expected as a number of large banks, most prominently Bank of America, have mentioned that they purchase treasuries as a way to boost income in earnings calls. Small domestic banks have also steadily accumulated these securities, though in much smaller size than the larger firms. Foreign bank offices have not been very active here, as suggested by their large rise in reserve balances, implying they are hoarding and not deploying reserves. We can also look at bank holdings of agency MBS securities in the H8 data. Small domestic banks have been more active here, adding about $130 billion, and large domestic banks have about matched their non-MBS accumulation with $200 billion. Foreign bank offices have stayed flat on MBS holdings as well. So far, we have discussed where and how reserves are being created, how they can be reallocated between banks, and how they can be converted into Fed repo liabilities through the money market fund complex. But what is happening on the other side of bank balance sheets, and how is it affecting what they are doing with their reserves? To unpack the details here, we must look at the kinds of deposits that are created by Fed and Treasury actions and consider the differences between them. Note that deposits can also be created through entirely private sector activities unrelated to the Fed and the Treasury, but we can focus here on deposits that have been created mechanically through policy actions. Let's return to the three routes of bank reserve creation discussed earlier and consider the offsetting deposit created on the bank's liability side simultaneously. Number one, reserves created through Fed asset purchases. When a clearing bank rece receives reserves, it credits the sometimes affiliate dealer's account with a deposit. Since the dealer is most likely sourcing securities from institutional clients, these flow through to institutional brokerage deposits for the bank. Number two, reserves created through the pay down of treasury bills. Since money market funds and institutional cash pools are large holders of treasury bills, maturing bills create brokerage or corporate non-operating deposits for banks receiving reserves. Number three, reserves created through treasury spending and stimulus payments. Stimulus payments going out to individuals create retail deposits for receiving banks and corporate accounts receiving cash for normal business operations create operating corporate deposits. 
The main reason these are very different propositions for the banks involved is the liquidity coverage ratio, LCR, the LCR rule introduced as part of the Basel III regulatory framework. Under the rule, banks are required to hold sufficient high-quality liquid assets, HQLAs, to fully cover expected net outflows during a model 30-day stress scenario. To calculate outflows for the LCR stress scenario, bank deposits are subject to different outflow rates depending on the type of the depositor. Small retail deposits fully insured by the FDIC accounts under 250000 in most cases are considered the most stable and subject to the lowest outflow rate, shown here as 3% for J.P. Morgan's second quarter 2018 calculation. Corporate operating deposits, which are most accounts essential for a normal business operation carry a similarly low 5% outflow rate for their fully insured portion. Other deposits are however viewed as much less stable, with institutional brokerage deposits carrying an up to 100% outflow rate. This, re this reality means that banks strongly prefer sticky retail and corporate operating deposits which barely affect their liquidity ratios and are averse to hot money deposits which affect them significantly. Since bill paydowns and Fed asset purchases create primarily hot money deposits, banks are eager to shed these liabilities if possible. If banks are very averse to a particular type of deposit, they can shed both the deposit and offsetting bank reserves to a money market fund. Meanwhile, fiscal spending and stimulus payments create attractive retail and corporate operating deposits, which banks seek to retain in place of less favorable sources of funding. Banks may use favorable types of deposits to upgrade their funding mix by paying down costlier borrowings or deploying the funds into securities as discussed earlier. With this background, we can look at year-to-day growth in deposits at banks also reported in the H8 data. Here we can see that the large domestic banks have added over 600 billion in deposits so far, roughly matching the sum of the 200 billion increase in reserves and 400 billion increase in combined securities. Small domestic banks have also grown their deposit funding, adding about 500 billion at a steady pace. We can also observe the more active behavior of the large banks as their deposit levels have been much more volatile. This is likely a result of the larger banks receiving deposits from all sources and being selective about which deposits to retain and which deposits to shed to money funds. Foreign banks have grown their deposits much less, and quarter-end seasonality here too suggests that these deposits are not sticky. Finally, let's look at bank borrowings, which in the H8 
include repo borrowing and other forms of short-term funding. Here we see that foreign bank offices have dominated the growth in borrowings, adding over $100 billion to their reserves through short-term funding. These borrowings also decline sharply on quarter ends, so we can conclude that the reserves foreign bank offices shed around those days are partly funded by deposits and more significantly by short-term borrowings. In this way, foreign bank offices are effectively warehousing excess reserves by borrowing them at rates below the interest rate on reserves and simply holding them. Large domestic banks in this chart paid down about $100 billion in borrowings, and small domestic banks a smaller amount. Most of these declines were likely related to pay down of balances borrowed from federal home loan banks, as discussed in much more detail by Zoltan Pozar in a recent note. This pay down is evidenced in the decline of total assets of the federal home loan banks and results in additional reserves being transmitted to the money fund complex through the FHLB, Federal Home Loan Banks, pay down of short-term liabilities held by money funds on the other side of their balance sheets. Finally, let's consider where we go from here. The expansion of the Fed's balance sheet is currently expected to end midway through next year, after a roughly six-month period of tapering. This means that we have roughly three months remaining of $120 billion monthly expansion before the taper period, or about $360 billion in balance sheet expansion. Then, if we assume the average rate over a straight-line taper is $60 billion per month, we would get an additional $360 billion for a total of $720 billion in Fed balance sheet growth remaining until it flatlines. With the Treasury cash balance at only $86 billion as of October 7th, however, we would expect some part of this balance sheet growth to be offset by Treasury cash on the liability side, as opposed to the Treasury pushing Fed liabilities to the private sector most of this year. The Treasury is currently prevented from rebuilding its cash balance due to the debt ceiling concerns, which initially flared up in August and September, and have now been postponed until year-end. At some point in early 2022, the Treasury will likely rebuild this account to its former level. If we assume it goes back to a pre-2020 high of $450 billion, this would mean about half of the Fed's remaining $720 billion in balance sheet growth will be absorbed on the liability side by the Treasury account, with only about $360 billion in growth left for bank reserves and reverse repos. We might expect the Treasury to fund this rebuild of its cash balance by raising the issuance of bills, which has been significantly reduced in recent months as debt ceiling issues become acute. While the prospect of the Treasury borrowing $360 billion at the short end and pressuring short-term rates higher may sound concerning, 
it is important to remember that money funds have added $1.4 trillion in cash that is currently earning 5 basis points in the Fed's reverse repo facility. If money market rates were pushed higher by increased demand for short-term funding from the Treasury, the reverse repo facility would go from setting a floor for short-term rates to setting a ceiling. Money funds would withdraw some cash from the reverse repo facility and deploy it into higher-yielding bills, repos, or commercial paper, preventing any rise in short-term rates from getting far above the reverse repo rate. We can probably expect current dynamics, large banks being selective with deposits and reserve growth, foreign bank offices, warehousing reserves, etc., to continue for the fourth quarter of the year, with a change coming in early 2022 as the Treasury rebuilds cash and the Fed begins to taper its asset purchases. This could see a period where mechanical creation of reserves and deposits quickly fades as a relevant factor to the U.S. banking system in the first half of 2022, and we begin to see dynamics driven more by the run-up to rates liftoff. Well, that is all for now. Thanks for reading if you made it all the way to the end and hope to see you back for another one soon as we approach the year-end and more interesting times for the money markets. Cheers, DC. That was chart book number 13, which means there's 12 others that you can check out at dcchartbook.substack.com. The first chart book was posted on March 21st, 2021. All of them as detailed as this one, really definitely diving into the plumbing of the monetary system by someone who understands it. It's fantastic. You can go to Substack and you can also go to Twitter to learn more. On Twitter, DC is known as at Analyst DC. I hope you enjoyed this reading. And of course, don't forget, there are so many charts and hyperlinks. There's 10 charts eight hyperlinks and one table that I simply could not describe to you as I'm reading everything. So if anything I just said, anything I read out loud sounded at all interesting, like you wanted to learn more, you will at DC's chart book. You'll see a lot more in the graphs and the tables and the hyperlinks. All right. Have a good rest of your day. And I will read at you tomorrow.